all these metals have huge demand prospects because of the, the green energy transition. We should expect them to become more volatile and probably higher priced as they struggle to meet that demand. This is not a world going forward when we can have that same, oh, you know, look, the market's going to get it right and we don't have to intervene approach anymore. No, no, this is a world where metal markets are going to need safety cushions and barriers. I think one of the wholesale shifts is a change of attitude about how markets should be regulated. But that also reflects maybe a broader change of attitude amongst the London authorities as well. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Days of Futures Past on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Andy Holm, Senior Metals Columnist at Thomson Reuters. We'll be discussing the history, the crises, and the scandals of the metals markets and the London Metals Exchange and what we can learn from them to build the better, smarter metals markets that we need for the energy transition. Hello, Andy. Welcome back to Smarter Markets. Hello, Dave. Thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here again. Absolutely. And I really appreciate you making the time to be with us again. I know you've been busy, as usual, writing the first draft of history, (laughs) and there's a lot of history happening in the metals markets. I should note for our listeners that as you and I are recording this, we're awaiting the ruling Uh, in London's Royal Courts of Justice on the lawsuits surrounding LME's cancellation of nickel trades in March of last year. And that ruling will certainly have big implications for the metals markets going forward. But while we await that coverage uh, and your coverage of that ruling, Andy, I thought we could take the opportunity to like look to history a little bit. And perhaps you could help us put what's happening today into context By looking back at some of the other crises and scandals that the metals markets have experienced over the years, as I was thinking about that, it seems like there's kind of one big one every decade or so. So maybe we were due. I don't know. But, you know, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So maybe you can help us learn a few lessons now so we can make metals markets that are up to the challenge that's coming. You know, as we talk about the energy transition energy is uh, becoming more and more dependent on metal, and these markets are going to be more and more critical to us going forward. So I appreciate you making the time. And you know, maybe we could start off, I think, going back, probably the biggest crisis that the, the LME faced prior to now, and I don't know where you'd put today in context of that, was in 1985. So maybe we go back four decades or so. And that was the tin crisis. And at the time, it was the worst crisis in LME history, began with the collapse of an international tin cartel and quickly escalated into the potential financial crisis of its day, threatening to bankrupt several LME brokers and creating calls for a British government rescue. I don't know if we had coined the term bailouts at that point in time or not. And I was thinking about this in the context of the conversation we had with Michael Marks of the NYMEX a few weeks back. 
And around that same period of time in the energy markets, the collapse of price controlling cartels really set the stage for flourishing energy futures markets. In the metals markets, the collapse of a price controlling cartel nearly destroyed the metals exchange. So I was hoping you could take us back to that moment in history. And, you know, why was it so threatening to the LME at the time? Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Dave. I mean, the LME is a history of crisis. And uh, this was the first one I experienced. I actually started writing about these markets in 1987, which was just two years after the, the thing blew up. But there was still plenty of litigation still going on around this tin crisis, right? So what actually happened? Why did it become an existential crisis? We're going back into a time, I guess, when governments generally, uh, particularly, uh, you know, the United Nations believed that it was right to try and control prices, to sort of try and put a floor price there for producing countries and a sort of like a ceiling price there for like I mean, consuming countries. I mean, there were similar agreements operating in coffee, cocoa, uh, uh, as well as tin, right? Now, what went wrong with tin? is that you have a buffer stock manager who was supposed to be really sort of like, I mean, pursuing this sort of guiding price policy. He was buying at the lows, selling at the highs, trying to stabilize the price. Long story short, somewhere around the mid-80s, the tin market started moving really heavily against him, right? Guys weren't sticking to their producer quotas. Um, the other guys were starting up new mines. In short, the world started becoming awash with tin. And he had no choice but to just soak up the surplus. And by the time he sort of went bust, literally ran out of money in 1985, I mean, he'd accumulated something like 121,000 tons of tin. That was about three quarters of the world's annual consumption at that stage, right? It's a lot of tin. Um, and it was also left a black hole of 900 million sterling, $1.4 billion at the round exchange rates at that time. Yeah, a lot of money now, a lot of money then. So tin was suspended, I think, uh, in, in October. And a day later, actually, it was October the 24th, they suspended tin trading. A day later, the International Tin Association, the group of 22 countries that lay behind this agreement, said they weren't paying. <laughs> they defaulted, in essence, right? This is a big problem for the market at that stage. There was no clearinghouse. Each broker, trader, acted as principal to everyone else in the market, right? When you're looking at losses of up to 900 million sterling, quite clearly you could see a domino effect of defaults. You know, broker A, who maybe have only a small position but is undercapitalized, uh, can't handle the losses, he himself defaults, passes on to brokers B and C, and so on and so on, right? No safety net. I mean, that generation of metal traders, I remember them very well, really sort of were facing a life or death moment for the 110-year-old market as it was then, yeah? How did they get out of it? Well, two things, two ways. First off, they decided correctly that they were going to sue the 22 governments behind the ITA and say, come on, guys, you've got to pay up. Well, that took about four years of, of tortuous negotiations and the settlement was finally reached. But critically, in terms of preventing the enemy collapsing in on itself, they came out with a, a pretty innovative solution, if you like. They decided to have what they called a ring out. So bear in mind, I mean, uh, the, the market's been suspended for months. The real market price, the gray market price, has just carried on sinking under the weight of a surplus metal, which we now have got to dispose of the buffer stock manager's metal as well. So they decided to set it at, I think it was, £6,250, halfway between the last traded price and what they thought the gray market was. And here's the deal. 
everyone shares the pain of that settlement, right? Everyone, no one has got a position. Everyone shares the pain. And most of the, the, the brokerages at that stage were owned by industrial players, and most of them stood by the brokerages. It, it prevented a default, if you like. But um, having said which, tortuous negotiations to try and claw some money back, Tin was only sort of actually re, uh, relisted for four years later in 1989, right? So... It was kind of a pivotal moment for the London Metal Exchange. Um, the LME had probably been under the radar, even amongst the London authorities, for most of its existence, right? It had operated very much as an old boys club. And all that was kind of, uh, you know, it had created too much of a stink, if you like, or found itself at the center of too much of a scandal for that to continue to be the case, right? So there was a, an overhaul in governance structure. Uh, they had to accept external market regulation in the form of a what then was the AFBD, Association of Futures Brokers and Dealers. And critically, they decided that it was time to have a clearing function because no longer could they trust each other to actually honor debts under an extreme situation, right? But sort of two caveats to this resolution, if you like, I think, which kind of set us up for the next scandal a little bit. The first was in terms of market mentality at the time, right? We're going back to the 1980s, and, and this was quite the rise of what we would now call neoliberalist views about sort of how markets should operate or how economies should operate, right? And here seemed to be this fantastic example of even government attempts to control a free market price must be doomed. Therefore, the market logically should be left to its own devices as much as possible. You know, I, I was looking at some old quotes and old notes from these times, and, and a board director at the time told me, he said, it's impossible for us to control the free market. And the enemy has thrived only because of its free market principles, right? So it reinforces the sense that the best market is one without any government intervention at all, no attempts to exert price control or whatever. And here was the great example, apparently, yeah? Now, the second issue was the old boys club had been broken open. That is for sure. And the introduction of a clearinghouse changed, I think, an underlying way of doing business or set of assumptions in the old market. And again, sort of, I was looking at notes from another board director at that time, speaking after the event. And he said, you know, in the old days, we could keep out non-desirables from our market. It was a closed shop. We all knew each other. We all had a, you know, um, my, my word is my bond was a reality for these guys. And he said, with hindsight, maybe the introduction of clearing generated more risk-taking behavior uh, when it wasn't anymore just the, the company's books that, uh, uh, that were in question. And as he put it, maybe it allowed more undesirable elements to join the market. That's fascinating. It's, you know, we talked a, a couple of weeks back on the podcast with uh, Joe Ray and Dan McElduff talking about using the clearinghouse for OTC with the setting up of Clearport and how important the clearinghouse function is to exchanges. It's fascinating that the LME existed for as long as it did without a clearinghouse where brokers had to face their credit risk and settlement risk of each other. Absolutely. As opposed to, you know, what we all tend to think of as the clearinghouse being the buyer for every seller and seller for every buyer. Mm. And that's why this particular crisis, I mean, translated very fast into there was about about 30 ring dealing members of the LME looking around the ring saying, we're all bust here. Technically, we are all bust. <laughs> if, we, if some of us start defaulting, we don't know how that domino effect is going to mm. like, you know, out across the entire marketplace, right? 
Right. And I guess for a while they had enough, they all had enough skin in the game where they could keep tabs on each other. And, you know, hopefully one of the benefits of the, the old boys club, but a lot of, you know, problems with that as well, obviously. So you, you said this kind of is what set the stage for the next scandal, which I think started brewing around the, t- the same time because it went on for about a decade before, you know, as we moved into the 90s, you had the Sumitomo copper scandal in which the chief copper trader Hamanaka engaged in unauthorized trading. Kind of seemed like one of the, the early rogue trader kind of episodes Absolutely, in a way. Yeah. But it ended up, you know, I think it involved an attempt to corner the copper market at times and ended up costing the Japanese trading house Sumitomo Corporation over $2 billion in losses. So can you walk us through that scandal? And how did some of what happened in the 80s set the seeds for what happened in the 90s? Yeah, you know, it's ironic. I mean, this all blew up in 1996 when uh, Sumitomo dropped its bombshell that it uh, had experienced unauthorized copper trading. Yeah, it was going to take a huge loss. But this starts in 1987, right? <laughs> Literally during the tin crisis or the, the back tell of it. Why do I say that? Because uh, a gentleman called Yasuo Hamanaka in that year was promoted to manager of the Sumitomo Copper Department, right? And how does one become a rogue trader? Well, the simplest way to become a rogue trader is when you replace your boss and he hands over his black book and says, by the way, something you should know, Dave, is that I've been running a black book and it's in loss. Um, uh, and the, the two guys seem to have taken a really fateful decision that they weren't going to tell anyone. And Mr. Hamanaka decided that he was going to be good enough. He'd make those losses back. So right from the start, He's trading the Sumitomo Copper Book, right? Which is, as you can imagine, a very powerful book, right? I mean, Sumitomo is a big, big player uh, in the copper market for mining, through processing, smelting, physical sales, and has its own, you know, I mean, electronics. So it is a huge book. And simultaneously, this guy is running, uh, I think it ended up being in the court cases, Book B, which he could then sort of like a means of be messing around with, you know, in terms of also building up positions. So... The long and the short of it is, using these two books, if you like, he became the dominant copper trader as early as 1991, right? 1991, he squeezed the copper market. And LME put a backwardation limit on, as it often did in those days, and also expressly asked him to reduce his limit, uh, his positions, right, behind the scenes. So even by that stage, he was running this market. Um, <laughs> when I used to make my market calls as a junior reporter in those days, he was referred to simply as the man. You know, the man has bought more copper, right? Everyone in the market was really structuring their trading around the man because his positions were always on the one side. They were always long, right? So it became almost hardwired into the market plumbing, this huge position that this guy was running, yeah? But now... He also learned the hard way. Uh, well, the tin buffer stock manager learned sort of like I mean a decade before. If you're going to manipulate a market, it's only really going to work for any extended period of time if you go with the grain of that market. In the early 90s, squeezing copper was quite easy because copper was actually running a, probably a deficit market. But about 92, 93, copper's moved into surplus. And guess what? He's back in the same situation as his tin predecessor. Yeah, what does he do? He has to keep on mopping up that surplus. Yeah, uh, the position yeah. is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, but about 93, 94, he is regularly running positions of over 1 million tons of exchange copper. Yeah, that's a big position now, Dave. Back then, it was, it was an extraordinary position, right? 
And of course, the bigger the position, the more he's struggling still right to hide losses of parts on the B book. He's trying to arrange financing to keep the credit lines going. I mean, it becomes ever more frenetic sort of juggling act if you, if you think about it. Put it this way, but I think by the time we get into 1996, I think after, yeah, in the report done afterwards, his positions were like all the LME stocks and 90% of the COPEX stocks. He owned the copper market as far as, you know, as exchange stocks go. He cornered it just, you know, uh, outright. Um, what really did him, I mean, the, the pressures were building, obviously. I mean, you know, if you kind of look back on the events leading up to the final denouement, it was a frenetic juggling act of getting ever more bigger credit lines from ever more players to try and just keep on, like, I mean, juggling these positions around, right? But what really did him was the CFTC. I think regulators knew something was up. This had been going on for quite a long time, right? The CFTC in December 1995 subpoenaed Sumitomo accusing them of manipulating the Kymex copper market, right? Q, six months of increased regulatory scrutiny, internal uh, Sumitomo scrutiny, and by, I think it was June, he's been promoted away from the copper book and the full horror comes out, yeah? Uh, leaving them with, a, with nursing a, yeah, a tremendous loss, and which copper prices also collapsing. Exactly as the, when the tin buffer stock manager ran out of money, what did the price do? It absolutely sank because now we know we've got all this metal hanging over the market. Ditto copper in 1996, right? We know that time has got about a million tons it has to sell into the market. I think it's kind of important to say on this particular scandal, and it's a crisis, if you like, for the LME, this was a criminal enterprise. You know, Hamanaka went to jail. He did jail time for this in the end, right? And Sumitomo's lack of internal controls for really a decade, I mean, they were also a key contributor to this whole uh, incident, right? But, you know, we've also got to go back to the LME, right? So first off, we go and go with this thing, right? The market will always win. Let's say fair. Let's try and not get involved as much as we can. We believe that the market will out and no one can dominate it artificially for long, right? Well, 10 years later, <laughs> it's quite a long time to wait for that outcome, yeah? Now, to be fair to the enemy, it didn't have any real visibility on what was going on, even in its own marketplace. There wasn't really a compliance department in those days. No one was counting positions at the end of the day. So the chief executive officer, David King, he was at the time, really didn't have any good insight into exactly what was going on. And the second point is, even if he had had better insight on market, Hamanaka's account was really structured off market. And, you know, as early as 1991, he, he, he moved out of the market. He started channeling his business through uh, introducing brokers, as we call them. First one was in the U.S., second one was in the U.K. Uh, he made extensive use of OTC structures, particularly in the options market, to influence price. He even, by the end of it, was getting into physical offtake contracts because he had to work out how to move increasing amounts of metal just around the world to keep plates uh, spinning, right? But... I think there was a sense that it was an LME crisis as well, even though it will go down in the history books as the Sumitomo crisis. I mean, essentially what happened is I would compare it to sort of like, I mean, a sort of a school which had been suffering from bad discipline for three or four years and they get a new headmaster in from the top 
educational board. In this case, it was a, a gentleman called Alan Whiting who came in from uh, the UK uh, Treasury Department. He was a senior over, uh, overseer of financial regulation, and he was uh, brought into. He was parachuted into the LME as chief compliance officer, as we call it now. Right? He gave it the full regulatory overhaul. There was a sense you have been badly behaved, and we're going to tidy up the shop. So he kind of he really wrote the LME rulebook on what he called market aberrations. I mean, a rule book that we're going to come back to in the later part of this conversation. I mean, that was his work. He created really what we now know as the compliance department, right? Increased transparency of stocks reporting. Prior to sort of 1996, enemy stocks were only reported twice a week. He made them daily, things like that. But again, I would say there were two big caveats to the second overhaul of the LME, right? The first was Whiting did genuinely reflect the UK Treasury's view at that time, which was still that wholesale markets in London should be laissez-faire from a regulatory point of view. Indeed, London's relatively relaxed oversight of its market put it in a competitive position next to the likes of the CME or whatever, right? So this was very much government thinking. And that laissez-faire attitude was written into this new rule book. Uh, the greatest example was they had a possibility of saying, here's a rule. You can't have a position over a certain size. They chose not to do that. The result was, you know, they said, you can have as big a position as you want, Dave. But all we're going to do is if you accumulate that position, we'll not allow you to squeeze the pips out of the market. You can squeeze the market, but not the pips. Daily backwardation limits will be put on your position depending on its size, right? But in principle, this idea of it's a wholesale market, you can play as big a stakes as you want, that was not changed. And Whiting himself, he was a very, very smart man. I mean, sadly passed now. I think he also understood that he had two big undealt with problems on the enemy. One was this OTC side of it. He knew I mean, Sumitomo was very uh, expert operator of OTZ positioning to exert pressure on the futures price, right? And the second thing he knew he had a problem with was warehousing, which I think is going to lead us into our, our next crisis. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was wondering how you were going to connect those dots to the next decade. But before there we go there, go. I, I wanted to ask you a question first in that I find this so fascinating because there's such the, the sense that history rhymes, if not repeating, and there's echoes, right? Like, it seems like one red flag we should all keep in mind is that if a trader becomes known as the man or big shot or the whale, like that should probably throw some flags <laughs> for everyone involved. And the other is there's this, this aspect of transparency into positioning of traders can have positions on exchange. They can have them in the OTC markets through the banks. And it seems like every time there's a crisis, kind of there's, there's a bit of a pullback and, oh, well, we didn't know you know, the positions were, were hidden. And I think to some extent that's true. And then the rule books are improved and the transparency is improved. But it also seems those two ideas that on the one hand, people are calling him the man. So there's a sense in the market that this person has outsized positions and influence. And on the other hand, after it blows up, everyone's like, well, we couldn't see. So is there is there a sense that we're always going to need some sort of informal policing in these markets that, you know, an exchange or the banks or whoever is involved is going to need to, even if they can't prove it, if there's a sense, is there some need for a little bit of detective work in making sure that traders don't find the cracks in the system? I mean, we've got to start off, I think, we're talking about commodity markets. I mean, what are they there for? They're there to hedge the risk 
of what is essentially an OTC trading system. I mean, look, if I'm sending metal to your yard, uh, Brian, we may reference the CME price, right? But I mean, that's our business. You know, what's going on between you and me? You, you book your, uh, your purchase, I book my sell. I mean, think about all that metal moving around the world. I mean, it's all moving on OTC contracts, physical market contracts and all that, right? So there is a natural tension in any commodity market between the futures component and the OTC component. I mean, what my takeaway from Sumitomo was that the market had evolved a lot from the uh, the ITC days, I mean, uh, the tin days. I mean, if the buffer stock manager had had the tools available to him, he could probably have perfected his position quite a lot further. So the market had evolved, and particularly uh, uh, the OTC options market had evolved for metals trading. Um, and there was, uh, you know, there was some big plays put on there. And you get to the stage, though, there's kind of a malice of forethought, right? I mean, I can have my OTC positions, and you know, you ask me as an exchange what they are, because I'm not going to tell you. Or I can structure my OTC positions specifically to manipulate price. And you come to me and say, I want to see those positions. I go, they're, they're hedges. They're hedges. Yeah? But there's many ways of sort of like skinning that cat or making a, a, a notional hedge, something which can be used to exert maximum pricing pressure on a specific day, particularly on options for declaration day, right? So this is the tension. Yes, OTC business is always going to be a key part of any commodity market, but the exchange has to be aware how dangerous what it can't see is. What you see, my friend, is only the starting point of your compliance function. Yeah, it's there to start giving you clues as to what else you should maybe be interested in here, right? And I think that was the first time I had seen such powerful, high volume sort of like OTC position plays used in any LME market, really, to really seem designed only for the purpose of supporting outright price. However, beautifully structured they were to look slightly different to a regulator, you know? That's a great insight. It's, it's, it's the what you don't know that'll get you. And so what you see is it's the first indicator of what you need to be looking for beyond what you can see, which wanted to talk next about the 2000s. And I'd love to see the connection here because, of course, in the 2000s, uh, I guess the next scandal, crisis, what have you, surrounded the warehouses for the delivery of aluminum against the LME futures contracts. Can you walk us through that scandal and what problems did it reveal in the delivery mechanism for the LME futures contracts? Yeah. I remember this is when everyone in the market suddenly had to become an expert in how to run a warehouse. I mean, none of us had actually really thought very much about it. But that is kind of symptomatic of warehousing, right? I learned more in uh, at about two years about warehousing than I had in previously in 20 years of covering the LME. So did the LME, and so did most traders. What does that tell you about that warehousing function? It was part of the plumbing. No one really cared that much about it, right? Uh, it was a really neglected part of the the market ecosystem. I mean, I'll just tell you a little anecdote, right? I mean, I found myself at a social gathering many years after the event with a guy who had been the chairman of the LME Warehousing Committee. And I said, well, you know, how did you get that? And he goes, it was dead easy, Andy. When I got promoted to the board of directors, I was summoned to meet the, the chairman of the board, Raj Bargri, now Lord Bargri. They Welcome on board and all that. So I'm very pleased to have you. He said, "No, no, no. You'll have to. You'll have to be. Uh, you'll have to chair a committee, you know." And he said, "What about warehousing?" And uh, my friend said, "Well, I know nothing about warehousing. Doesn't matter. Nothing very much happens there." <laughs> 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 Which at the time was probably true. But here's the problem: 
All right, so this is a part of the market, and I do think it's part of the market, but was really left with minimal supervision for many, many years, right? And warehousing companies did what they want to do, but they're not particularly supervised. They started year in, year out, lifting their storage and their loadout charges. As a curiosity of the LME system, right, they're required to set a maximum for each. So it's the maximum that's going up every day. They don't have to charge the maximum. In fact, they're going to give you a discount. But the problem is your discount is being given against a constantly moving upward price. And over a period of time, you've created an absolute yawning chasm between the cost of LME warehousing and the real cost of warehousing, right? So what really changed then, this was an accident waiting to happen, what changed was the global financial crisis and the aluminium market. So two things happened in aluminium. Demand evaporated, particularly in the automotive sector, which was having its own meltdown, you'll recall, at that time. Smelters are notoriously difficult to power down and switch off uh, and very expensive to do so. So everyone just kept producing. The net result is LME stocks rose from about, I think, 950,000 tons at the start of 2008 to 4.5 million tons by 2009. That's, that's the surplus washing into the market of last resort, right? This neglected part of the LME ecosystem is now big business, right? Because these guys are storing huge amounts of aluminium. Goldman Sachs was the first to make its move. It bought Metro in 2010. Now, Metro is the dominant operator in Detroit, which is where most of that aluminium was. It's the epicenter of demand weakness in North America, and it's also just over the border from the Canadian smelters, right? You know, two years later, Glencore uh, bought another warehouse company called Paccarini. By the, by the middle of uh, the decade, virtually every trading company had bought its own warehouse company. What then really changed, and I, we, can, we can put this down to, I think it was September the 10th, I wrote down 2010, something extraordinary happened. Someone cancelled 100,000 tons of aluminium in preparation for physically loading it out. No one had ever seen so much metal cancelled in one day, ever, Right. You've got to think 100,000 tons. I mean, even the biggest merchants do not normally make that sort of call on the market of last resort. What we know now is it wasn't any of them. This was Deutsche Bank. And Deutsche Bank was basically taking that metal for a cash and carry financing trade. You've got to go back in time a little bit to those early noughties, right? Um, two things are happening. Because there's so much aluminium, it's generating what we call a super contango along the curve, right? With huge differential forward prices over the cash price. At the same time, interest rates are zero. So the cost of, you know, you can use aluminium as almost an interest rate bearing metallic bond to pay you out 5% or something. The money to do it's going to cost you nothing. And by the way, you can't even sort of get any money by leaving it in the bank for the same reason. So suddenly this becomes a very, very attractive financial solution to a, a low interest rate environment, right? The delta in your profitability is the cost of warehousing. That's it. The cheaper the warehousing, the storage, the more money you can make from the trade. Hence, Deutsche Bank, thank you for your 100000 Now we're going to go to a cheaper warehouse, right? Because it's going to make it much more profitable for us. But the LME system wasn't designed for someone wanting to move 100,000 tons. The LME had a minimum loadout rate of 1,500 tons per day on all of its operators. Being warehouse operators, they, of course, take the minimum and use it as the maximum. I, we're not going to do any more than that. You can work it out, 100,000 tons, 1,500 Suddenly, you've got a huge loadout queue at Detroit, right? Within a few weeks, as others follow where, I mean, uh, Deutsche's gone, you've got 120 days to get your aluminium out of Detroit. That's the enemy loadout queue from the warehouse, right? 
And the clever thing is, because Detroit Metal is what we call the free float metal of the enemy system, everyone has to pick up this location to get their metal. Join the queue, my friends, right? And that's interesting, because the way enemy warehousing works is that if I'm storing metal there, your warehouse, uh, uh, Dave, uh, uh, you'll give me a nice discount for, for, my, for my custom, right? As soon as I cancel that metal and tell you I'm going to like uh, move it out, no, no, we revert to that super maximum rate, which is otherwise never charged, right? This creates the Q revenue. With the Q revenue, guess what? I can go and bid for more units in the physical market. I become a physical market player, right? Think about it, right? If the Q is giving me $100 per ton, aluminium, I can then go and use that $100, bid it in the physical market. You know, there's merchants out there going, hey, you know, we put our usual bids in for the physical tenders. There's a warehouse company is now outbidding us and sucking up all the metal, right? So what happens is this interaction between warehouse and physical market, it starts distorting the aluminium price, which breaks into two. LME basis price and the huge physical premium, which is now sort of like anyone has to pay to get metal in the physical market, which is being driven by the Q model that the warehouse companies are operating. It's a horrible, messy sort of like business, right? <laughs> You've got Coca-Cola, the botters, they're complaining to Congress. Congress holds a, you know, an inquiry into it. The CFTC is mega unhappy with the LME, uh, quietly drags its feet on giving the LME or renewing the LME license to operate in the U.S., People try to sue the warehouse operators unsuccessfully in the end, right? I mean, the enemy, once again, is accused of distorting <laughs> the aluminium uh, market, in this case, aluminium, right? So that, that was really the essence of it. And yet again, certain sort of things come up. Now, one of the problems of being a neglected part of the enemy system, i.e. not really, it, it's an ancillary function. Let them do what they do as long as they don't behave too egregiously. The enemy warehousing rule book wasn't that good <laughs> at the time. So what if I told you, Dave, that when Deutsche took those 100,000 tons out of Metro, where do you think it moved it? It moved it down the road to another Metro shed owned by the same company. Just a Metro shed that wasn't listed with the LME, right? Where he could get super cheap storage. And what if I told you that all of its freight costs were covered by Metro if at the end of the financing deal, it returned all the metal and put it back onto warrant at the original metro shed, right? Um, a congressman famously called this the merry-go-round scheme. Goldman, which owned uh, Metro, called it an off-warrant transaction. Here we are again, an off-warrant transaction, right? And here's the thing. The enemy looked into this in quite detail and found, believe it or not, that there was nothing illegal against the enemy rulebook in doing this sort of merry-go-round trade. They came with the conclusion it was against the spirit, but not the letter of the enemy rulebook. Right? <laughs> um, Laissez-faire, yeah, enemy was slow to react to this. It was a building for several years. As you can imagine, uh, there, there were consumers shouting blue murder left, right, and center. They took the view, again, this is a market phenomenon. We shouldn't really have to change it. It was only when the, the CFTC got really serious and said, you know, guys, you may lose your license to operate in the U.S. if you don't reform the system, that they then embarked on a, you know, a really tortuous reform process, basically trying to eliminate what they call structural cues. I would suggest to you it was only partially uh, successful until very recently. Someone was still running the same Q model for aluminium uh, in uh, Port Klang in Malaysia. So, um, you know, I think the enemy decided that, I mean, it, after six years of reform, it couldn't actually eliminate the problem. Uh, he tried to say, well, let's perhaps increase transparency around stocks data a little bit more. But I'm not sure that worked either. 
So that was it, really. But again, I mean, forgetting that the physical infrastructure of market delivery is as important as trade flows to price discovery, being kind of caught out that their warehousing problems, uh, which they left to fester for quite you know, several years before doing anything about it, had, had managed to split the aluminium price into an enemy basis and a, and a physical market premium. And really only under sort of like extensive regulatory pressure did they then embark on the reform process. Yeah, that episode's such a great example of, you know, how, as you said, nobody cares about the plumbing until it's leaking and no one really cares about the intricacies of delivery mechanisms and the market infrastructure until it breaks. But I think, you know, you got to think about it ahead of time because when a, a stressful event comes, like the big surplus in aluminum, you know, a bad mechanism will break. I think I remember one piece that might have been the insult to injury aspect of that was, of course, when you, you know, if you were holding a, a futures contract in LME and aluminum and took it to delivery, you didn't get the aluminum itself. You got the warehouse receipt, which you could then turn in to get the aluminum. Uh, but of course, you are responsible for paying those storage fees until it was loaded out for you. So you could be paying that high storage fee for the 100 days or 150 days or whatever it turned out. That's the Q model. I mean, you know, it, it, it is interesting, isn't it? So, I mean, the, the LME and many terminal markets would claim to be the market of last resort. I would say only one way round. It is, it is for a producer looking to sell surplus metal. It is actually not for a metals user, precisely because the warrant that you receive, you know, the warehouse receipt, is at the seller's choice. Mm. So chances are, if I'm an Italian consumer, what I really want, of course, is the enemy to deliver me a warrant in Italy. Chances of me getting that are virtually zero. I'm going to get it somewhere else and then have to go on a, a secondary trade, if you like, to see if I can swap the warrant when no one wants it with the one that I want. So it doesn't really function as a market of last resort practically for metals users the same way as it does for. So I think there's a, there's a risk imbalance there. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, it yeah. does work well both ways as the market of last resort. That's a great point. And I guess that brings us back in the timeline to the current nickel crisis. I was struck by the similarity of the underlying problem to that of the uh, the main potato crisis that nearly destroyed the NYMEX in the 1970s, you know, and that is the the type of commodity traded in the physical market migrates away from the type that's being traded in the futures market, so that producer hedges or shorts are no longer deliverable against the futures contract, leading to a producer deciding to renege on their futures positions. It seemed like that was a lot of what was at the basis of the short squeeze on on the uh, LME nickel uh, a year ago in March in that the producer was producing a, a speck of nickel more associated with making batteries, not the stainless steel grades that would go to the, the futures. And so they couldn't deliver the physical metal and decided not to you know make good on the contracts. And I'm curious because with all these crises, there's you know there's the issue, you know the problem in the plumbing that helped kick it off. And then there's the issue of how you deal with it once the problem's on the surface. And I'm curious how you're thinking about the two pieces of that story in relation mm. to what happened at LME last year. And what lesson would you take away from it? <laughs> well, we should make one really important point at this stage, right? This is not the first time that the LME suspended its nickel contract. 
It did so in 1988, one year after the nickel contract had been launched, right? <laughs> it was then really an open outcry system, but the key official uh, ring session where the, the benchmark day's price is set was suspended because they were, it hit a liquidity vacuum, right? Old ways of doing it, emergency board meeting, uh, probably half of them were conflicted, sort of like making the decision, but they, they, they did manage to sort of like find a way of resolving it with by the time of the afternoon ring session. But it provoked a big discussion specifically around the deliverability option. Because even then, the grade A, if you like, class one refined nickel contract, even then did not reflect a large part of the market. And back then, just as now, more recently, there were shorts who could not deliver their physical product against that contract. So this was a really well-known problem. There were many years of quite intense industry conversation about it in the 1990s. But in the end, it was just put under a too difficult to resolve file. I mean, no one could work out, you know, a physical benchmark which would act to sort of like bring together sort of this huge spectrum of, of nickel, like I mean, products and forms and shapes and all that. And that still remains the problem today. So there's another case of learning from history. Because what happened over the last six or seven years, you've had a massive build out of uh, production capacity in Indonesia, particularly for stainless steel grades and now more recently for battery grades. None of it is deliverable against the LME contract. So what was already a problem in 1988 has become a, a, an increasing magnitude problem. You know, where the LME contract might have represented, say, 60% of world's production, it's now about 40, 30% and falling all the time. So, you know, for me, there's kind of a, it kind of goes to the, back to the warehousing thing if you're going to have physical deliverability make sure it works right yeah I'll understand if there are pressures where it can't work i mean i think the enemy seems to have got in that uh, lesson a little bit uh, you know again we're back in the otc build-up sort of a uh, uh, position build-up problem of lacking visibility you know i mean there were a lot of things that could have been done differently with hindsight but here's the thing. I mean, here's another dimension to this, right? I mean, they were still ended up facing a sort of like a multiple member default. We go back to the tin crisis, they, even with their, with a the clearinghouse there now, right? That tells you how big the positions and how big the potential losses were in it, right? It's going to certainly look. I think what we've discussed, Dave, is we see the evolution of a market via crisis, right? The only time the enemy gets an overhaul is because something has gone very badly wrong with the LME. It is going to get a, another overhaul, by the way. I think the times have changed. That laissez-faire attitude of the City of London to its markets, it doesn't it just doesn't gel anymore. There's been, we had repeated scandals. You can think of the, the gold and silver fixes. You can think of the LIBOR interest rate. And you can think of the LME as embodying this kind of light touch approach of regulation. And I think its days have just passed now. So you look at what the LME has already done in the last year, right? So now we have hard backwardation limits across uh, you know, the time spreads. We have, I mean, price bands. We have volatility bands, right? These were things that were, were, were you know, these were kind of heresy to the enemy community for much of the time that I've been writing about it. But, you know, those days are, are gone now. And you rightly say, you know, all these metals have huge demand prospects because of the, the green energy transition. We should expect them to become more volatile and probably higher priced because as they struggle to meet that demand. This is not a world going forward when we can have that same, oh, you know, look, the market's going to get it right and we don't have to intervene approach anymore. No, no, this is a world where metal markets are going to need safety cushions and barriers 
many, many of the enemy's contracts have had real extreme times of tightness over the last two years. I mean, uh, and, you know, it could be a taste of things to come. So anyway, I think one of the wholesale shifts is a change of attitude about how markets should be regulated. Uh, but that also reflects maybe a broader change of attitude amongst the London authorities as well, right? Yeah. And I'd love to take a step back and, and ask you about the attitude, because you've alluded to it several times, you know, with the, the laissez-faire attitude, the potential boys club in the old days. And, you know, in this series, we've talked a lot about the importance of people in places, you know, with the character of the people and the cultures of Chicago and New York being reflected in their markets and the exchanges that they built. Metals markets have traditionally been centered in London. And I was curious, you know, from your vantage point, how has the character of the city and its people influenced the development of the metals markets there? Actually, that's a great question. So if you go into the LME website, right, and, and just go and look at the LME membership, you're going to see companies from all over the world there, from U.S. investment banks to Chinese metal companies to South American producers. It's exactly what you would expect to some extent of a market that has boasted it, you know, generates global pricing. But go to the very inner heart of the LME, which still to this day is the open outcry ring trading part of it, right? These guys in their suits shouting at each other uh, in a ring of sort of like, I mean, leather upholstered chairs, right? This is still the core of the market. Look into that core. And I would suggest to you that most of that core lives within 12 miles of itself, based around a town called Chelmsford. And if you don't know it, don't worry about it. It's a small town uh, just sitting in Essex, just to the east side of London. All right. Something then that fits back into the history of London. You know, despite what the films will tell you, there are no real cockneys left in London, right? They left. They left in the 70s. They left in the 80s. In some ways, it was down to slum clearance where new towns were built out, I mean, uh, outside of London. It was also a reaction, I think, of uh, a largely white population reacting to ways of non-white immigration. Anyway, a large part of those Cockneys went to live, guess where? Just east of London, in Essex. So in some ways, the LME is kind of a historical distillation of the old Cockney London. And it has that brashness about it. You know, there's a whole cultural ecosystem that we have about which county in the UK has which characteristics. So if I had to sum up Essex, it's brash, it's flashy, it's self-confident, it's money-oriented. It's definitely sort of like, I mean, what I call Thatcherite. It's definitely conservative politics. It's definitely free market sort of principles, if you like. The old East End of London just has migrated a bit but that is where most of the ring traders come from. Some of them are related by family. Many of them are related by friendships, just in the way it would have been in the old boys club 30 years ago. All that's changed is the center of gravity, like London's center of gravity for that population has moved a little bit eastwards. And they are probably a slightly less diverse bunch than they were back in the old boys club of the 70s, when they really did come from all sorts of walks of life. In fact, in many ways, it's where all the misfits ended up. Whereas I think that's less the case now. It's more homogenous, if you like, as, as a cultural entity, right? As I said, I mean, it, it personifies what would have been known as the old Cockney attitudes of London, but which now we in London would call the Essex attitudes. That's great. And you know, just as we wrap up, you know, as we look to the future, 
We know that the energy transitions requiring tremendous quantities of metals, some currently trade like copper, others require new markets to be built or modifications to existing markets like nickel to keep pace with that changing physical market. I'm curious, first, do you think London will remain the center of gravity for the metals trade? And, you know, within the Essex group, will that maintain the, the center of gravity within the LME? And then what do you see as, you know, the big picture lessons we need to take away if we're going to build better, smarter metals markets up for the challenge of the energy transition? Yeah, so uh, it's a really interesting question. I mean, answer your first question. I don't think the LME will maintain its dominant position, uh, not specifically because of the most recent of, of all these scandals, but more because I think the global metal supply chain is deglobalizing. And that's just part of a, a broader macroeconomic trend, if you like. Um, it, you know, the, the, the pace of urgency is maybe heightened in some metals because of strategic considerations, maybe by the U.S. military, for example. I mean, this is very explicit in the uh, the arena of uh, uh, critical raw materials, the rare earths, and all that. But it is happening, I think. I mean, you know, I, I expect a more regional structure of market pricing to emerge. Maybe there will be global links, of course. How not but maybe you know cme will become a much more powerful price setter for the, the americas maybe the chinese will become a more powerful price setter for the asian area and you know the lme will continue will, will almost kind of go back to where it started as being a price setter for europeans and some south american producers uh, and, and, and anyone else who wants right i don't think that's specifically about the nickel crisis i mean it hasn't helped the enemy's reputation right obviously but I think that's just part of a broader trend. And I don't think any exchange will resist that. I just see that happening in all sorts of little ways, right? Now, how do we build a better market? Well, so one of the, the takeaways, two takeaways immediately, right? If you are going to have physical delivery as an option, the mechanics of physical delivery, what's going on in physical delivery in your warehousing system or your terminal sort of like a network, it's as important to price as any order flying across your floor, right? If you're going to be physically delivered, well, you've got to take it seriously. Your contracts have to be matched as closely as possible, the physical market, and you have to make sure you have a warehousing system which is equitable and fair. And I think the, the, the lesson of the aluminium warehousing crisis, it was neither. It was neither equitable nor a fair system, and it had been allowed to organically grow distorted, if you like, for many years. There's a more profound question, though, for me now, and Nickel's a really good example. Have we reached the end of physical deliverability? Right? The, the answer, say, to, to Nickel, I don't think it's another physical deliverable contract. We're back in the same thing. How do you find a physical benchmark which gives you sort of, I mean, a sort of like, I mean, a way of pricing a whole spectrum of different products? Is it even possible? I'm not sure it is. The answer may be the bond solution, basically, which you have a series of index prices, you have standardized futures contracts, and you leave the market and say, guys, we've given you six or seven options here. Which one? You work out yourselves which one it is. But physical deliverability may simply not be a possible answer to nickel. It may be increasingly difficult answer to other metals as they kind of their usage transforms, right? An even more fundamental question, if you like, again, flowing out of nickel, can the LME actually take, can its ecosystem handle big positions? 
particularly speculative positions. Um, I'm talking about its date structure, which tends to fracture liquidity, but also its capitalization structure. Look, here we are again, even with the clearinghouse. Last year, we're looking at another domino meltdown of membership through defaults, right? Is there a point where this market simply cannot take a dominant position? It's the running theme of, I mean, you know, you look at from the, the tin stock manager to Sumitomo, to the huge positions to be you know, of the financiers for aluminium, to now the huge short positions. The structure does not seem to be robust enough to handle it. And one answer might be to say that you're combining the wrong things in the wrong market. What if you took out spot price discovery and the futures curve? What if you actually separated those two things out? The spot price is still going to be physically discoverable, but... It's got nothing to do with the futures curve. Now, that sounds far-fetched. I would draw your attention to an outfit called Global Coal, which is proposing exactly this solution for a new nickel contract. It's not been launched yet, but it's planning. Uh, we, we wait more news imminently, as it were. So its idea, and it's based on the way it prices coal, is you do have a delivery mechanism there. Right? You've basically got a group of people who are going to trade cargoes of arrivals. And there is no speculation. If you, don't want to, if you don't want to pick up a cargo of nickel, don't bid for it because you are going to get a cargo of nickel. So, yeah. But that is just used to create a spot index. Yeah. And then I sell that spot index or I do deal with it to, uh, well, you name it, a CME or whatever. So you go and futurize it. You go and let all the speculators play as much as they want out there. But they can't get involved in my spot index because it has to be by people who are literally prepared to buy and sell cargoes. And this kind of opens up a whole new set of ideas about markets for the modern age. The problem is, just as with the two judges in the London High Courts of uh, Justice, judgment is out. We have to wait for them to, uh, to, to launch their sort of like a new nickel contract and, and see whether it works for them. But I find it a fascinating concept of saying maybe the problem here is this market based on physical delivery simply cannot handle a futures OTC or whatever position without sort of coming close to cracking every time. Maybe you separate the two things out. Jury out, quite literally. <laughs> it remains to be seen. Thanks again to Andy Holm, Senior Metals Columnist at Thomson Reuters. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue to explore the days of futures past on Smarter Markets. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange. Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability. ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. 
Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, Abex Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.